Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie back with you. Jeff Seschel with us. Jess, these astronauts are competitive. Uh, I was talking to a friend of Buzz Aldrin's last week, and Buzz really wanted to be the first man on the moon. Sure he did. <laughs> he famously did. And um, and I think it was tough for him not to be. I, I, I talk to my kids about it sometimes, and they say, he's right there. He was only a couple of minutes later. But um, I think it's a tough thing to take. Yep, sure was. Now, what made you key in on John Glenn for the book Mercury Rising? Well, Glenn was really the star attraction of the Mercury 7. There was something about his personality that, that really shone more brightly than any of the others. And, uh, in fact, his his flight did as well. And I, I really wanted to understand what, what made him tick. You know, I, I had seen the right stuff, of course, like so many people. I'd read the book. I'd read a lot of the, the popular accounts. And Glenn is, is always described the same way as a Boy Scout, as a Sunday school teacher, as kind of a prim guy. And, and it seemed to me that there, there was some truth to all that, and yet there had to be more to John Glenn, or he never would have been able to achieve what he achieved. I mean, it, this, this was not just a Sunday school teacher and a scout. This was actually the most decorated combat veteran of all of the Mercury 7. So some of the other astronauts hadn't even fought in combat. Alan Shepard had not fought in combat, and uh, it was sort of a sore spot for him. But Glenn had fought in World War II. He had flown Corsairs in the South Pacific, and he had he had fought in, in Korea as well and shot down a number of MiGs and was well on his way uh, toward becoming a, a flying ace when, when the war ended. That was his great disappointment at the end of the war was that he didn't have time to, to rack up uh, uh, more, more uh, kills. And he was quite frank about what he was there to do. Uh, he was not there uh, to have fun. He was there to get a job done, and he was pretty fierce in getting it done. The original Mercury 7 astronauts, they're all dead now, but most of them did not get along with John Glenn, did they? They did not. Um, Scott Carpenter did, and they had a close relationship, the two of them. But the other five really kept their distance from Glenn. There were a couple of reasons for this. One was his celebrity. The fact that, that Glenn was actually famous before he was an astronaut. Glenn had become famous in 57, so a couple of years before the astronauts were chosen. He had become famous as a test pilot who had set a speed record flying a jet from Los Angeles to, to Brooklyn in three hours and 23 minutes. He wound up on the front page of every newspaper in America. He wound up a contestant on uh, Name That Tune, a very popular game show on, on CBS, and he was on primetime week after week in his uniform, charming America. So when Glenn reemerges in 59 as an astronaut, he's already a star. And he's also the, the most at ease in front of the cameras. And the cameras just loved him. He was funny. He was relaxed. He was humble. He would talk about his family. He would talk about his faith. And the others were pretty tight-lipped fighter jocks. They were there to fly. They were not there to, to charm the 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 newsreel cameras but 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 Glenn was there to do both and they resented it and and frankly they resented it for the rest of their lives if you read their their uh, memoirs they talk about that very first press conference and and they feel that that Glenn was hamming it up and maybe he was maybe he wasn't but they were not capable of doing that and they um and they resented it well he was a consummate politician because when he got elected to the Senate in 1974 he was a shoe in 
but he was very comfortable in speaking engagements. He was. He uh, he was somebody who had been in front of the cameras by 74. He'd been in front of the cameras for almost a couple of decades. And so he was not awed by any of that. Um, he was not in need of attention. This was not the first time he was at center stage. And, and so he, he had that sense of, of confidence. He really had his feet very much on the ground. Why do you think it was a stroke of luck that Glenn followed Shepard and Grissom? Well, Shepard and Grissom flew what were called suborbital flights, and uh, Jeff Bezos is about to, to take one of those next month on the, well, that's the, right. the new Shepard rocket. And then Richard and, Branson. They're going to try to race each other, I guess. <laughs> that's right, the new space race. But a suborbital flight is exactly that. It, it doesn't get into orbit because they were riding a rocket, the Redstone, that was not powerful enough to push a capsule with a human being on it into orbit. And that rocket, the Atlas rocket, just wasn't ready. It had all sorts of problems. It was exploding on the launch pad, and the the U.S. program was not ready to to send a man into orbit. So Shepard and Grissom had to settle for these 15-minute flights where they went up and they fell down, and that was that. And Glenn was actually in line third for another one of these flights. But by this point, the Russians now had not had had orbited not just one but two of their cosmonauts, and it had just become too embarrassing for NASA to continue to do these what they called short shots, and they had to accelerate the orbital program. But there were still very serious worries about that Atlas rocket that I mentioned that it just wasn't ready and it wasn't going to get ready, and in fact, even on the eve of John Glenn's flight. The president of Convair Astronautics, which was the company that built the Atlas rocket, would only allow that it had a four in five chance of succeeding. Oh my it had God. a one in five chance of something horrible happening to John Glenn. Now, Shepard and Grissom, didn't they go above with a Redstone rocket? They, they briefly went into space. They were weightless for a few minutes. And then gravity kicks in, and, and they, uh, they came just straight down. They, they were not able to actually get high enough to get into orbit and to, to lock into orbit and counter. But the they had gravity. redstone rockets that got them up there, right? That's right. Yeah. Those were redstone rockets. That's right. But Glenn was the first to ride that atlas. Remarkable. Just a remarkable story. And he never was in Gemini, which was the dual uh, ships. He was not in Gemini. He would have liked to be. And he stuck around because he expected that, of course, he would get back in the rotation. That was always the plan. It was never supposed to be one and done. But the resentment that the other astronauts felt toward Glenn was not limited to the astronauts. Some of the the NASA managers also resented Glenn. They thought he was too much of a showboat. They they felt that uh, he needed to be kind of put in his place. And so they kept him out of the rotation. And they essentially gave him the runaround for a couple of years, not telling him that he wouldn't fly, but never allowing him to fly again. And finally, Glenn, by 64, had gotten the message it wasn't going to happen, and he dropped out of the program and, and uh, began his career in politics. How did uh, going into the space shuttle and uh, at the age of 77 happen for him? Well, Glenn, at, at that point in the late 90s, was, was nearing the end of his fourth term as a senator from, from Ohio, and he was going to retire. He was uh, 77 years old in, in 1998, 
and he was he was doing some research on the effects of aging. This was an issue uh, that he worked on as a senator. And he began to think, well, look, they've got all of this data on me in 1962 when when I was, uh, you know, 40, 41 years old. Uh, I wonder what would happen if I went into space today. They could do a longitudinal study and compare me at age 77 with me at age 40. And, uh, of course, this was not a purely scientific inquiry. Glenn was desperate to get back into space, uh, in part for the reason that I mentioned a minute ago, that he had gotten boxed out of of the program back in, in the 60s. And so he made his case to Dan Golden, who, who was the administrator of NASA at the time. It took some time. He sold Golden on the idea. They took it to President Clinton, who approved it. Glenn passed every physical test that the younger astronauts passed. That was a prerequisite of this being able to work. And, and in October of 1998, he went back into space. That's remarkable. Just remarkable. Now, he, he was never part of Apollo because he had resigned before that, didn't he? That's right. I mean, it was the, the writing was on the wall. He could finally see it, that he was not going to get a chance to, to go to the moon. And they were kind of nudging him to take a desk job at NASA and then move into the administration of, of NASA. That wasn't what he wanted to do. He wanted to fly, and it was just too painful for him to stick around uh, at a desk job. So he decided that he needed to just move to another realm altogether. He'd always been interested in politics. President Kennedy and Robert Kennedy had encouraged him to, to run for Senate, and he felt that it was finally time. We're coming up on 52 years since we were last uh, on the moon, first on the moon, but Russia still hasn't done anything. Still. Well, China is um, you know, more likely to get there uh, soon than, than Russia at this point. And maybe even us. They're That's gonna, right. They're well, we get are their... talking about going back, and, and, and Russia, for all of its continued activity in space, does not seem to be quite as focused on the moon as, as the U.S. or China. I mean, China's building space stations, going to Mars with the rovers, and uh, they're all over the place, aren't they? They've got three uh, Chinese astronauts on their way up right now to the to their space station. It's, it's the first uh, astronauts from China going up, I believe, in five years. Why aren't they working with the Federation? Well, China has, has generally taken a go-it-alone uh, approach in, in space, um, and, I, and I think that, in fact, one of the leaders of their space program made it plain today. Um, and this actually, I think, very much recalls the history that we're talking about. Uh, he said that, that a nation that is uh, showing its, its prowess in space is clearly a nation uh, with uh, great uh, and advanced technology here on Earth. That they are, that that space is a projection of power on Earth. It is a very powerful symbol today, just as it was in the early '60s. Did Kennedy know John Glenn well? He did know Glenn well. Um, you know, he he uh, saw something in Glenn that he didn't see in the other astronauts. He saw that political ability, that political instinct, and and that leadership quality. You know, Alan Shepard was a phenomenal pilot and was chosen first, as, as you mentioned. But Shepard was never interested in being the leader of the group. Shepard was interested in being the winner. He wanted to go first. Now, of course, they all did. But, but Glenn had always been a leader, and that was the, the role that Glenn saw for himself. And, and so he also had a very uh, strong uh, uh, impulse toward public service, and he felt that he was serving his country, of course, as a Marine pilot, and then later as an astronaut, that he was advancing U.S. interests around the world by being an astronaut. 
And so it was natural from Glenn's view that he would try to do that in, in political office. When Kennedy made his famous speech, we choose to go to the moon, uh, he really captured the nation, didn't he? He did. And, you know, what's interesting about that speech, so that was the speech that he gave at Rice University in, in September of 1962. You would have loved to have written that one, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Boy, yeah, that's one for the ages. That's 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 truly one of the great speeches. Um ever made by a president. And what's interesting about that is is how different it is from the previous speech that he made in part about the moon. When he announced the goal that the United States would send men to the moon by the end of the decade, that was back in May of 1961, just after Alan Shepard had gone up. And that's a very bold statement. But if you if you watch the rest of that speech, and I encourage people to pull it up on, on YouTube, you can watch the whole speech, he, he goes off script after he says that, and he begins to get a little awkward and uncomfortable, which is not how you usually see John Kennedy. And he starts to shuffle the pages on the podium and like he's and lost, like he's he's lost in a speech or something. He he is, and 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 what he goes on to say extemporaneously is, this is going to be really hard, and this is going to be really expensive, and you, the Congress, and you, the American people, need to think really hard about whether we're going to do this, because the worst thing would be if we were to commit to this, and then at some point along the path to the moon, we just we give up and, and we decide it's, it's not worth the effort. That would be worse than not going at all. And he got in the presidential limo to head back to the White House afterwards, and he turned to his speechwriter, Ted Sorensen, and, and he said, essentially, I, I don't think they were buying it. He was reading the audience, the body language of the members of Congress, and he felt like they're not... They're not buying the no commitment. Thing. That's right. And they gave him the money that he asked for because it was seen as a national security investment. But they were not sold on the notion that the United States uh, either needed to go to the moon or that it could go to the moon. Those were amazing times. I remember them. And uh, they were they were just rallied the country together. Well, it, it did become a unifying goal, and I think that by the time of that speech that, that, that you mentioned, that speech at Rice, Kennedy has, has really decided that he is all in. I mean, he had announced the goal, but now uh, this was that, that second speech was after John Glenn had, had gone up and orbited the Earth, after Scott Carpenter had done the same thing. There was some momentum in the program, and, and Kennedy really was trying to make sure that that momentum got locked in. Uh, there was always the danger that Congress was going to lose interest in the program, that it was going to cut funding, and it was often threatening to do that. And so Kennedy was trying to keep the energy up and keep the sense of optimism up that we really could do this and that we really had to do this. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.